You're listening to Resonate with Trent Griffith. How are you using your money? Listen, when we use our money so that others can enjoy God, that's what brings meaning to the money. It's not in making more, it's by giving more for the purposes for which God intended it. So remember God when you are dissatisfied with money. Trent is a senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. He's taking a closer look at the book of Ecclesiastes in a series called Made for More. I'm Aaron Paulus. Thanks for joining us today. You know, there's more to life than your career, and there's more to life than what kind of car you drive or how many kids you have or what you eat or even how happy you feel. Pastor Trent says true meaning in life comes from remembering something. Here he is to explain. Let me invite you to open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. You can just open it to the very first uh, verse there. We're going to review it in just a moment. Then I'm going to meet you in chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is a really strange letter. If you're not too careful, it would read like a suicide note. I mean, the guy is depressed. And all he's doing is he's writing this, is cataloging everything he's tried to find meaning and purpose in life. And he can't find it. And all he says throughout the book, over and over, 40 different times in the book, he says, vanity of vanities. It's all vanities. As a matter of fact, look at it here in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, the king of Jerusalem, and we identified that as who? King Solomon. And Solomon is writing at the end of his lifetime, and this is his summary of life. Verse 2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, in case you didn't pick it up. All is vanity. Five times he uses the verse, uses the word in one verse. And we learned that that word is a really strange word. It kind of loses its meaning in the English translation. Some translations translate it meaningless or futile. It's, it's really a metaphor for smoke or fog or haze or vapor. It's like on a cold morning in Michiana when you breathe out your breath and this vapor appears for a minute, and if you were to try to grab it, you couldn't get your hands around it. What he's saying is, that's what life is like. As much as you try to get a grip on life, you just are left wanting more, more control over the things that happen. But no matter what you try, you just can't quite get a grip on what the purpose of all this is. And the Hebrew word that's used is hevel. So over and over we see this Hebrew word and he's trying to help us. Now, in order to understand Ecclesiastes, I told you it's really strange. Here's the key to understanding the book, okay? There are two voices in Ecclesiastes. We've already identified the first one. Who is that? Solomon, richest guy that ever lived, wisest guy that ever lived. He tried everything and he's really depressed. Now, throughout the book, occasionally we hear from a second voice. And that is the voice that gives us the perspective of eternity. Over and over, Solomon says, there is nothing under the sun that satisfies. It's all hevel. And yet the second voice comes in and actually gives us a perspective beyond the sun. And if we don't 
if we don't understand that, then we're all just going to go home and commit suicide. That's, that's not the purpose of the vit. T- turn to your neighbor and say, that is not, God does not want you to commit suicide. That is not the purpose of the book. So we need to hear from the second voice. Now, seriously, look at me right now. Some of you have been swimming in the hevel and you've never heard the second voice. My prayer is this morning we will hear from the other voice. And in order to do that, I want you to turn all the way to the back of the book, find chapter 12, and I want to read to you what really was one of the most formational verses in the Bible for me as a teenager. This is one of the first verses that I was ever introduced to as a 15-year-old when I first came to Christ and I first started reading the Bible. This verse gripped me as a 15-year-old. This is what it says. It says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near in which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Now skip down to verse 13. This is the conclusion of the whole book. Last two verses. And he says this, the end of the matter In other words, after everything has been tried, everything's been experienced, here's the conclusion I draw. The end of the matter, all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man, or the the whole purpose of man. This is what you were made for. You were made to fear God and keep his commandments. For God will bring every deed into judgment, whether good or evil, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Very simple outline this morning. Three points, six words. It's simply this. Remember God, fear God, obey God. That's how you grow in this life. That's how you grow in grace. We need to grow in remembering God, grow in fearing God, and grow in obeying God. So let's take those one by one. The first one is remember God. Now, I am told here in verse 1 that I am to remember. Let me explain that for you, okay? Are you ready? Write this definition down. Remember means don't forget. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning to learn something new? You see, that's the point. There's really not, not a whole lot new that you need to learn. You just need to remember what you already know. Now, some, I'm looking into the faces of some of you. You, were, you came to church nine months before you were born. Just think about it. That didn't land very well. Did you understand? So you... You didn't have a choice, right? So, and some of you, you remember crawling the aisle as an infant and giving your heart and life to Jesus as soon as you heard the gospel. Some of, I'm talking, and you've been in church every day since that, almost. And there's others of you that this is your first day in church. I'm speaking to a wide range of people this morning. Understand this, that God doesn't want you to forget the foundational truths of who he is. 
The reality is some of you are taking notes right now and you're going to keep those notes and file them right next to the notes that you took last week, next to the notes that you took last year, next to the notes that you took when you were 15 years old. As a matter of fact, in my office right now, I love to show my staff this. They can't believe I have it. I have every sermon note I have ever taken on every sermon I've ever heard. Okay, they're in my office. I can pull them out. I can pull it. There's 1987 right there. And and I can see what the preacher preached there. Listen, for me, it's really not about learning anything new. It's about not forgetting what I already know. You live in a world that is trying to convince you to forget God. And it doesn't matter how much you affirm on Sunday. It matters whether or not you remember it when you wake up on Monday. Some of us live as practical atheists. We say we believe what we heard on Sunday, but you forget it by the time the alarm goes off on Monday morning. Remembering means don't forget. Let me tell you what else remembering means. Remembering means bringing thoughts of God into your mind consciously and intentionally when you are faced with the hevel. You see, when you are faced with the tragedy that is this life and when things don't make sense and when a 19-year-old walks into a school and shoots 17 of his classmates in Florida, you get face-to-face with the hevel and you say, that doesn't make sense. Why doesn't somebody do something about that? Why didn't God do something about that? That's when you have to remember your creator in the days of your youth. When you've done everything you can to work hard and save and to plan and spend thrifty and you still lose your job and you're still short on money and you still can't pay your mortgage, that's when you have to remember When you love your family and someone gets cancer and somebody dies and you're left alone, that's when you have to remember the things that you know are true about God. No matter what the hevel, remember your creator in the days of your youth. You see, it's as simple as this. Remembering God is the remedy for the hevel. Remembering is the remedy for the hevel. So we're told that we should remember. Secondly, we're told when we're to remember. You see, we're to remember when we are disillusioned with wisdom. So let's go back and kind of look at some of the things that he's cataloged, he tried. Let's look at three things that he tried to find meaning and purpose in life. The first of those is wisdom. Now remember, this is Solomon, wisest man who ever lived. This is the same guy that wrote the book of Proverbs, okay? So he, he cataloged for us all kinds of great statements that, that are wisdom. And then by the time he tries it all, he's like, ah, I just can't find any purpose in that. Look at what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 13 through 18. He says, I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. As a matter of fact, if you're a student, you can probably really appreciate those words. Right? As I, here's a great verse. This is another reason why I like Ecclesiastes. If you let your eyes go down your page, you're in chapter 12. Look at verse uh, uh, 12, Ecclesiastes 12, 12. He says, My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of the making of books, there is no end. And much study is a weariness of the flesh. 
have any college students in here that are weary right now? Because you think you're never going to get to the end of all the books that you're supposed to read. And, and I'm seeing, they're so weary. They're about to fall asleep right now. But what he's saying, he's not saying wisdom is bad. He's just like, it's, it's wearisome. So he goes on and he continues in chapter one. He says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is hevel and a striving after the wind. Again, there's a metaphor of you can't quite grab the wind or control it. It always leaves you wanting more control. He says, what is crooked cannot be made straight. In other words, all those dirty, rotten rascals that are out there making life miserable and why don't they get caught and why isn't justice served and why did the person that hurt me, why aren't they um, convicted of crime? He's like, you, you can have all the wisdom you can. You still can't make things that are crooked straight and what is lacking can't be counted. In other words, no matter how much wisdom you have, you never have enough. The more you learn, the more you realize you lack in wisdom. And so he says this, I perceived that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. In other words, the more you know about the way the world works, the sadder you get. This is the wisest man who ever lived. And he was sad because he still didn't have enough knowledge or wisdom to figure out why it stinks here. A couple of years ago, on this platform, we had a couple of men come to speak to our college students. And uh, the two men were very impressive men. One of them was David Robinson. You know David Robinson, seven feet one inch tall, played for the Spurs, won NBA championships. He's in the NBA Hall of Fame. The reason he was here is not because of him, even though he was awesome. It was because of his short son, Corey, who's only six feet, five inches tall. And uh, Corey was, at the time, playing wide receiver for the University of Notre Dame. And so uh, Corey had just finished his freshman year. And, and so we had some connections and we got as many college students. We had about 300 college students in here. And a lot of the Notre Dame football players were here. And both David and Corey shared their testimony of faith in Christ. And it was, a, it was a fantastic night. Corey shared about how when he was in high school, he heard the gospel. It impacted him. He repented of sin. He put his faith in Christ and he loved scripture and he loved God and he was growing in Christ. And one of the reasons that he chose to go to Notre Dame was because he perceived that it was a faith-friendly environment. And so he's, he came here, he played wide receiver, but then he got here and he enrolled in his his classes in philosophy at Notre Dame. And he said he had to read all these books of dead philosophers and, and they were so depressing because they were trying to explain the world without God and, and they had a worldview that was kind of anti-God and, and, and he was reading all this stuff he'd never been exposed to before. And he said, quite frankly, my faith was challenged. I was questioning God. Had I been lied to? And, and I was, he said, I was just so depressed and I was just kind of curled up in a fetal position. And, and he said, finally... I reached for my Bible and I opened it up to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. And it told me to remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, in which you say, 
I have no pleasure in them. He said, I I recommitted my life to Christ. I reaffirmed my belief in his word. And later on, you might remember, Corey quit football before all of his eligibility had run out. And the reports were it was because of concussions that he had had sustained. I'm sure that played a role in it. But those people that know Corey the best knew that Corey just kind of found playing with balls was just kind of meaningless. He wanted his life to count for more. He realized he was made for more. So he became student body president at Notre Dame and gave himself to serving other people, and he's doing great things now. All of it because he reaffirmed his commitment in God and his word. And so if you're here and you're struggling, I want you to understand, you're never going to find a philosopher. By the way, we are all philosophers. Everybody's searching for meaning and purpose. Solomon was the philosopher. And after he had tried everything, he boiled it down to this. In the midst of the hevel, you have to remember what you know about God is true. So, remember God. And he says, remember when you are disillusioned with wisdom. So that's his first experiment. Then he tries something else. He moves moves from wisdom and he tries money. So remember God when you are dissatisfied with money. So this verse is in Ecclesiastes 5.10. He says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income, this also is vanity. Now, some of you just relaxed a little bit when you read that because it's about money and you don't have any and you don't think you love it because there's nothing to love, right? It's like, hey, just move on to the next one. I don't love money because ain't no money to love. No, listen, I have found some people who have no money are the ones that love it the most because they really believe if they had more money, they would have more significance, satisfaction, and security. And people that have the money will tell you, I'm still dissatisfied, insecure, and if I had a little more, I could probably have some meaning and happiness. There was a report done in 2012. They actually studied some people who had some money. And... um, they, they, they looked for a correlation between the accumulation of wealth and the amount of happiness in a person's life. And what they found was there is kind of a, a correlation between wealth accumulation and happiness until you reach a certain point. And that certain point they found was about $75,000 in median income in, household, in the household. By the way, the median income of household income in Granger is about $80,000. But they said anything beyond that, they found no correlation between the amount of happiness and the amount of money. As a matter of fact, they found that the more money you have, the more complex your life gets. And it actually brings anxiety and stress just managing all that stuff. So the key to to having um, happiness is actually giving money away they said. And so that's what is affirmed in scripture. Remember who's writing this. This is Solomon, the happiest guy, uh, the, not the happiest guy, the most depressing guy, the, the wealthiest guy in, uh, in the world. He said, this is hevel. There's no correlation between your satisfaction and the accumulation of wealth. He says it again over in Ecclesiastes chapter six, verses one and two. 
There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. Number one, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet, God does not give him the power to enjoy them. But a stranger enjoys them. This is hevel. It is a grievous evil. Do you understand? There are some people to whom God gives some of his stuff to steward and to manage. To one person, God may give some of his stuff and says, manage it well. But the second gift is actually the gift to enjoy it. And Solomon's saying, why doesn't God ever give that gift? It's because God never intended for you to find satisfaction and pleasure and significance enjoying your money. God gives you money to use it as a tool to help others enjoy God. That's where the satisfaction comes from. That's where the purpose comes from. Yeah, you remember, were you here a few weeks ago when I told you, Andrea and I, we had this crazy life before we started um, Harvest and we lived in this trailer? It's a true story, okay? True story. For 15 years, we lived in, a, in an RV travel trailer, about 400 square feet with four kids. We just lived in the trailer. The trailer wasn't ours. It was borrowed. And so, in a sense, we were really homeless. And so, in 2003, when I had the uh, last kid, God really started kind of convicting me that as the father, and I need to provide for my family kind of a permanent dwelling place. Just, it might be nice for your wife to actually have a home and your children and a place to come home to. So, so we began to pray that God would allow us to have a home. And so um, we, we just started asking God to supply some more money so we could buy a home. And um, we kind of started a little savings account, and God started building that a little bit. We were making about $1,000 a month from support. People would send in $25 checks or $100 checks or something like that. And so we started saving as much as we can. The Lord provided a little extra. And uh, in this savings account, we built up about $4,000 just getting started toward God give us a house. And uh, then uh, we were in some meetings, and uh, there was this speaker that came in. Um, his name was Vernon Brewer, and Vernon Brewer had started an international aid organization called World Help, and he had some strategic partnerships over in India where uh, the gospel is, is very scarce, and yet there's, there's pockets of believers over there that meet in house churches, and he had been connected to them. And one of the things they had told him was that um, we are really mocked by uh, people of other faiths because they have these big temples and worship centers and these elaborate synagogues and different things. And he says they mock us because we just we have to kind of meet in people's basements and just kind of cower together and things like that. And they would say things to us like, if your God is so big, then why can't he provide for you a place to worship? And they would mock them. So Vernon told us this story, and he said through some connections that he had, he had found out that there were about a thousand congregations over there that actually he could build a church facility for them for about $4,000 each. And so he shared this need with us, and guess what God did? God said, hey, Trent, you got $4,000 sitting over there. 
I said, do you want that? He said, yeah. Okay, it's your money. So we wrote that $4,000 check, and we sent it off to World Help to build a church. About a year later, I got a package in the mail, and there was a, a plaque and a picture, and the picture was this. And the plaque said, dedicated to the glory of God by the Griffith family. And that's what $4,000 can build in India. Now, looking at that church, can I tell you the joy in my heart when I look at that is worth far more than $4,000. So I planned on telling you this story, but last night I was thinking, you know, I wonder if this church actually still exists. And so I Googled it. And sure enough, when I Googled the Himalayan Free Church in Darjeeling, North India, I found the spot on the Google map where the church is. And then I found out they actually have a Facebook page. And so I opened up the Facebook page and this is what I saw. That's what it looks like on the inside. Listen, when we use our money so that others can enjoy God, that's what brings meaning to the money. It's not in making more. It's by giving more for the purposes for which God intended it. So remember God when you are dissatisfied with money. And then this, remember God when you're disappointed with pleasure. All right, so he's tried wisdom, he's tried money, and now he moves on to the third test, pleasure. Here it is. I said in my heart, come now, heart, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was hevel. I said of laughter, it is mad. And I said of pleasure, what use is it? So apparently he tried to stimulate his five senses. Things that he saw, things that he heard, things that he tasted, things that he smelled, things that he touched. Think about our culture today. We are swimming in sensory perception. Movies for our eyes. Perfume for our smell. Food for our taste. Sexual gratification for our physical senses of touch. And yet, all of it, Solomon had at his disposal. How many women did he have available to him on any given night? A thousand. And he tried them all. And at the end of it, when every sense had been stimulated, he says, it's mad what use is it? And so the second voice speaks to the first voice and says, remember your creator in the days of your youth. A lot of people assume if I just had, well, you fill in the blank, then I'd be happy. Or if I only made this much more money, I wouldn't have any more problems. Well, King Solomon and Pastor Trent Griffith have been showing us that that kind of thinking is actually foolish. We'll hear the conclusion of this message next week right here on Resonate. Trent is a senior pastor of Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. 
We actually meet both in Granger and St. Joseph, Michigan, and you're invited to join us for a worship service soon. For more information about service times and locations, just go to harvestgranger.org. Again, that's harvestgranger.org. And if you're on Facebook, you can find us by searching for Harvest Bible Chapel Granger. Well, if it ever feels like things are out of control and upside down, well, take heart. Next week, Pastor Trent will help us fix our moral anchors to the solid, unchanging, and immovable truth of God's Word. I hope you'll join us then. Well, thanks for listening today. I'm Aaron Paulus saying you were made for more. And my prayer is that God's word would resonate in your heart and mind this week. Resonate with Trent Griffith is a radio ministry of Harvest Bible Chapel, Granger, harvestgranger.org.